So I wanted to share with you one of the books as I do, Noah's Flood by, what does it say, Norman Cohen. And this is a really a beautifully illustrated book. I didn't want to put any highlighting on it, so I used these, these stickers, but it really is a beautifully illustrated yeah. book. But the last half of the book, or most of the book, except for the first few chapters, really demonstrates what a big waste of time people spent on trying to determine whether the flood actually happened or not. Throughout history, how much energy has been spent on this myth, trying to prove, like we were talking about, that it's literally happened with very little about what its true meaning is. So I relied on this book a lot for the Mesopotamian myths, which I felt gave us a, gave us a much better idea of what they were thinking about when they were reading these flood narratives, because a lot of these cultures had these flood narratives, um, and the land was flood regularly, flooded regularly. So it gives us an idea of what they were actually talking about. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. So, why don't we start just reading Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And then we'll go to the commentary, and then we'll have our discussion. Chapter 9, Genesis 9. God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth, and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it, and from every human being, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God 
made mankind. And you, be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Well, now we'll go to our commentary. The Noetic Covenant. God establishes government. The myth of a great flood originated in ancient Mesopotamia. A fragment of an ancient Sumerian poem from around 1600 BCE opens with a speech delivered by the supreme god Enlil to an assembly of gods. He tells them of how he established the divine laws, including kingship. He established the five Sumerian cities and set rulers over them. The gods then decide to send a flood to wipe out humankind. A pious king learns of the plan. He survives the flood in a large vessel built to divine specifications. For this, he is granted eternal life. Norman Cohn, in his beautifully illustrated book, Noah's Flood, The Genesis Story in Western Thought, writes, this Sumerian version of the flood story seems to have been composed for a political purpose, to strengthen the established order. The king was central to that order. And the story not only insists that kingship was established by the gods, something that every Sumerian knew well enough, but also shows us a king who was so devoted to the gods that they rewarded him with safe conduct during the flood and immortality after it. Closely linked with the king were the priests, and the poem is concerned with their interests too. In the opening speech before the assembly of gods, Enil announces that after the destruction of my human race, he wishes the survivors to build new cities 
on holy places and to work for the observance and promotion of the divine laws. In all this, one seems to hear the voice of the court poet. The ancient Babylonian myth of the Epic of Gilgamesh is preceded by a story of creation in which the gods create humans to work for the gods. But the chief god, Enil, becomes annoyed with the noise humans make. So he foolishly decides to destroy them in a flood, leaving the gods without their servants. Again, a wise and devoted king named Atrahias is warned by the god Inki about the flood and survives in a reed boat with animals, family, and possessions. In the Atrahias epic, the gods are stupid tyrants and the humans are heroic. In the Greco-Roman version, on the other hand, Jupiter observes the evil deeds of humans, their violence, bloodlust, and contempt for the gods. Enraged, he summons the council and determines to destroy humanity. In the book of Genesis, God observes that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt and filled with violence. God regretted that he had made humankind. It grieved him to his heart. So God planned to kill all the human beings and animals and start over. But God found favor with one man, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Early Christians viewed Noah as an exemplar of righteousness. The author of the letter to the Hebrews describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Noah heeded God's warning and took action. In so doing, he condemned the world that did not act justly and became an heir to righteousness. The author of 2 Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Testeka, is that how you say it? I'm not sure. The Hebrew word translated as righteousness or justice means more than simply personal virtue and piety. It has a social dimension. It means active involvement in social concerns to resolve social grievances and to correct every injustice. Justice is fundamentally about making things right acting justly towards others, especially toward the marginalized and oppressed, is to be in right relationship with God. To walk with God is to have concern for the powerless and oppressed. Mishpat, translated as justice or judgment in the Old Testament, means ensuring that all members of the community have the resources needed to lead a dignified life. Some scholars suggest that the combination of destequa 
and mishpat, when they appear together, refer to social justice. Righteousness and justice are closely related, and when paired, form a, how do you say it, Bert? Hendiades. Hendiades. Yeah, and the first word you're trying to get there, uh, they usually, when, when English people say, speaking people say it's, it's sadaka. Sadaka. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So a hey diocese is a distinctive phrase that appears together frequently. The words sick and tired, for example, have a unique meaning when paired together. Psalm 33, verse 5 reads, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. The centrality and richness of justice in the Bible should caution us against making fine distinctions between justice and words like love, mercy, and faithfulness. John Donahue describes the biblical idea of justice as fidelity to the demands of relationship. In the ancient world, to live was to be united by bonds of family, or covenant. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, love motivates justice, and justice creates the conditions under which love can flourish. Our great spiritual leaders were motivated by love of God and neighbor. They campaign against injustice and extol a vision of justice for all. God did not literally kill every human and animal. The story is meant to highlight the severe and persistent problem of evil and violence in the world, pointing the way to its solution. At the same time, the story also explained to ancient people the origin of rainbows. The rainbow, a mesmerizing phenomenon to ancient people, may have been seen much as it is today, as a message of toleration and multiculturalism. God is partial to the poor and oppressed. In the Old Testament, these people were represented by four groups, the poor, widows, orphans, and the foreigner. This was embodied by Jesus's ministry to those on the margins. Biblical justice exposes the structures of injustice and gives voice to the voiceless. To do well is to be like God, deeply concerned about injustice, abuse of power, and human suffering. Scripture describes God as just. God seeks and loves justice. It is one of the stipulations of the covenant. God experiences regret and grief at injustice in the world. In the end, God reiterates the message, don't kill. To that end, God enacts a punishment for the taking of human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. The story parallels the creation narrative. God enjoins humans to multiply and fill the earth, but the proliferation of humanity leads to corruption and violence. Man corrupts, but God renews creation. 
God creates a new covenant and in so doing formally establishes human government under divine auspices. God recognized man's corrupt nature, yet authorizes corporal punishment so that man may not take human life carelessly. This in turn establishes the basis for coercive civil government. John Calvin argued that the covenant is not limited to punishment for homicide. Civil laws are God ordained. He wrote, God so threatens and denounces vengeance against the murderer that he even arms the magistrate with the sword of the avenging of slaughter in order that the blood of men may not be shed with impunity. Martin Luther added, God shares his power over life and death among men, provided that the person is not guilty of shedding blood. Him, God makes liable, not only to his own judgment, but also to the human sword. Therefore, we must take careful note of this passage in which God establishes government to render judgment not only about matters involving life, but also about matters less important than life. Thus, a government should punish the disobedience of children, theft, adultery, and perjury. This text is outstanding, for here God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check, lest violence and other sins proceed without limit. God extends his covenant to the earth and all its living creatures. Never again will God destroy the earth and all the animals just to address human evil. This demonstrates God's care for creation and makes care for the environment and all life on earth a human duty. As we have seen, not only are we our brother's keeper, we are keepers of the earth as well. We are bound by covenant with the planet and all of life on earth. Creation testifies to God's divine presence. God makes the rainbow as a sign of the new covenant and God's promise to never again destroy creation. The rainbow with its beauty and colors symbolizes the diversity of creation and cultures in a pluralistic world. Classical pluralism is concerned with how power and influence are distributed in the political process. God is not establishing a singular culture. Instead, God wants us to all get along despite our many differences. Robert D. Culver in Civil Government, A Biblical View, identified four provisions of civil government found in the Noetic Covenant. I have modified them to wean them from Culver's authoritarian views. First, the purpose of civil government is to protect, preserve, foster, and improve the environment and all life on earth. The second is that governance has its origin in religion. Religion was the first form of politics and 
in its truest form is about governance. Third, human society must be governed ethically with concern for others, including animals and the environment. Finally, humans created in the divine image were created to govern themselves. The Genesis narrative is a product of the period when Israel fought for its survival and aspired to prominence among the nations. The J or Yahweh source embodies the beliefs, practices, social values, and communal structures the Yahweh envisioned for a restored nation of Israel. The Yahweh's theology and social ethic paves the way for the promise to make from the seed of Abraham a great nation. Okay. So what do you guys think about this idea that Noah is about, or at least the Noahic government is about the establishment of government? What do you guys think generally? Any comments so far? Hey, I, I had some notes I jotted down beforehand, okay. and and a lot of them you went over, Richard. Uh, a lot of it you covered. That's oh, on my my research. So it, it re, kind of reinforces yours. The ancient flood stories, I think, especially the Sumerian one, has a a lot of the details are very much the same as the Je- the Genesis one. So the way I I take it is there's this flood story that's already there, and the Israelites are reinterpreting it. And, uh, you know, a lot of what's in Genesis 1 through 11 is a reinterpretation of the Babylonian and other stories that were there. And like you said, what they see, what they seem to add to this story or what they see, what they seem to change about it is rather than the flood being sort of capricious, kind of, kind of for no apparent reason, just that gods are, you know, find the humans annoying is that it's, it's for reasons of justice that the human society, civilization has become oppressive. And, I, and so I was looking at that uh, and, you know, it says, it says the reasons are violence and corruption. Those are the two words, you know, so violence is pretty clear. And we've talked a lot about that, but I, I was looking up corruption. What is it? What is it? What does corruption mean? And I found this Psalm that, uh, that maybe I, I think the Psalm may be, about the flood, about the flood story, because um, it's Psalm 14, and the first six verses go like this. It says, fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable th- deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They're all per- per- alike perverse. There is no one who does good, not one. Have they no knowledge of uh, all of the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, who devour my people, and who do not call upon the Lord, they will be in great terror. For God is with the company of the of the righteous or the just. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. So the way it describes, it's very much like the Genesis narrative where God is looking down and saying, everyone's evil. They're all, you know, they're oppressing the people. They're devouring my people and they're frustrating the plans of the poor, but, but you know, God is their refuge. And so God has to destroy everything, which seems kind of weird to destroy even the, you know, the oppressed as well mm-hmm. as the oppressor. So that Psalm, it seems to be 
you know, God looks down and, and sees that everybody's, you know, the, the society, human society has got become oppressive. So he's going to wipe it out. And that's typical of a lot of the, the prophets, you know, where the judgment on Israel or whatever, because when they, when the prophets talk about God's judgment on Israel, Israel has become oppressive. It oppresses, oppresses the poor. So God's going to use a foreign empire to punish it, which doesn't really match up with our modern sensibilities because we know that the poor are going to get get the worst of it. But sure. uh, that's just kind of the way it was done. Also, I think you mentioned that you, you talked about this. The flood story is, is sort of a second creation and emphasizes that people are made in the image of God, not as a slave force for the poor, for the, for the ruling class. So that made in the image of God is reinforced, I think, a couple of times during the flood story in Genesis. And then an, another thing, Christine Hayes, uh, I was watching some of her lectures at Yale lectures that are on YouTube. She made the point that in the Garden of Eden, before the flood story, humans are vegetarians. And here mm. in chapter nine that you read, they are finally allowed to eat meat but they can't eat the meat with the, the blood. blood in it. And so in these verses, the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of animal life are both held up. Like you can eat meat, but you've got to uh, respect the sanctity of you can't eat the blood. And Christine Hayes says that somehow she got out of that. You have to, you have to pour the blood on the ground like an oblation. Or, mm-hmm. But this seems to be, part of where animal sacrifice comes from is the idea that we, we can eat animals, but it must be a sacred act. So we think of animal sacrifices as barbaric ancient practice, but in comparison to modern factory farms, right. where we just slaughter animals and we don't even think about it. We don't even have to see it. It was actually a much more humane practice. So that's, that's interesting that this is the chapter nine is where humans are you know, in the Bible are explicitly told, okay, you can eat animals, but you got to, it's got to be a humane practice where you have to remember that the animal's life was sacred. And it's all in these verses about the sacredness of human life, that if, if, if a human life gets taken, then the cost of that is the human life that took it. So that's all together there. So I thought that was interesting. We think about animal rights and their place. And yeah. yeah. And it was kind of like God almost relent, had to relent because you got the idea that yeah. they were eating animals probably. And, but that's part of the story, of course, because obviously God didn't create all vegetarian animals, or at least not all the animals in the world are vegetarian. So, well, um, in the story of Noah, they said Noah had to take, um, in one of the flood narratives or the, the ark narratives, it, says that Noah took two of every animal and of the clean animals, which are the animals that were, that could be used for human consumption and for sacrifices. He took uh, seven pairs. And so he makes a, and he makes an animal sacrifice after the flood is over. It's I think part of the same chapter that you, that you read. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a little before. I think uh-huh. it's the last part of the pr- chapter eight. Oh, is right? it? I think so. Yeah, it's almost as if not only were the humans eating animals, but 
the animals were eating animals. <laughs> kind of like that maybe God had to make animals available for food because both humans and animals were already eating them. So like God comes into the picture afterwards, after he created this world in which nobody had to kill to survive to a world where everybody's killing to survive. So what do you guys think about the story of Noah's Ark? I thought it was kind of neat because a lot of the story is about how to build the ark. And then the story of the ark. And then there might be symbolism with the raven and then the dove. Yeah. Um, but I didn't see, I don't know if I, there's any real meaning in that part of the story besides the fact that I mean, what meaning can you draw from the specific, except for the fact that the ark was a box and not necessarily a boat? Oh, really? Yeah. So if you look at the dimensions mm -hmm. that they describe, it's actually a box. And the idea is kind of that when God separated the waters from the, there was something separated the waters from something, then this is an image of, the reverse of that, hmm. the water sort of coming and the whole cosmos being destroyed or shaken. So um, did those people that built that one in Kentucky, isn't it? Isn't there that replica in Kentucky that looks like a boat? Yeah, um, they, they didn't do it to the speci specifications. They claim they did. <laughs> well, apparently not, <laughs> according to my research. At least. Okay. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think that Bert and I probably both as as uh, Mennonites and coming from the Anabaptist tradition, I, I heard your part about it being about establishing government quite interesting and talking about this covenant. And I know you use the phrase new covenant. And of course, it was new because it was a reestablishment of that be fruitful and multiply. And these are the rules you should live by the things, the rules that God gave out to Adam in, in the Garden of Eden. So it's new in the sense of that. But Anabaptist theology that we come from basically tells us that the followers of Jesus basically don't participate in that coercive government. So they arose out of um, objecting to exactly what Calvin was saying. Okay, so so your your excerpt from Calvin would have been like the total opposite of what the Anabaptist theologians who came who were con roughly contemporaries and shortly after Calvin's time would have had to say about that and that Jesus intended the church not to participate in that in coercion and violence. So this is a compromise. This involves some coercion in order to curb violence, which Anabaptists acknowledge based on Romans, God established government for those who didn't have the model of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit 
that would allow them to avoid coercion and violence entirely. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. that reminds me a little bit of of earlier podcast we did. We talked about is it chrysanthemum? Is that how you say his name? And John Chrysostom. Yeah, John Chrysostom. Yeah, it means golden mouth. Right. His last name. Yeah, he had this idea that Christians not only ruled themselves, they were not subject to the rule of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And that's when Augustine came out with his whole doctrine, the city of God, and the use of force or the government to control even Christians. And, and with the Anabaptist tradition, there seems to be some, there's sort of a way of, we're not to be involved in government. So I, I was kind of confused by that, the difference between, because I, I was trying to study it, trying to figure out if I fell into one camp or the other, and I found I didn't fall into either totally. But do you know anything about this Anabaptist view about government and what the church's role should be in government? So, so my reading of it, and it sends, tends to be tends to depend on on who you ask, what their church is told in the Anabaptist tradition is, or even which Anabaptist historian you're talking to. But my reading of of Anabaptist history. Now, I didn't grow up Mennonite. I I get this because I was ordained in the Mennonite Church, and so I did you know had some reading on our on the history and how it worked. So my understanding is that the original Anabaptists. What they were opposed to was the coercion of the church and the state, and they broke away, and they actually weren't unified on whether the use of violence was right or not. What happened was- Not initially, Anab- yeah. Yeah. The Anabaptists that you, that were willing to use violence, that you know, some of them joined the peasant rebellions. There was a group of them that took over the city of Munster, but they all got wiped out. And by the second or third generation, the only Anabaptists that were left were the pacifists. Mm -hmm. So that's why it became a peace tradition. And the separatism was due to not wanting to use violence and also being persecuted. They were heavily persecuted in Egypt, in in, uh, Egypt, sorry, in in Europe. They were heavily persecuted in Europe. And so they had to break away and, and, you know, every generation or so they would flee wherever they were and go somewhere else because they were being persecuted. So they developed a sort of an insular kind of separatist tradition. The original Anabaptists, though, I think were not so separatists. I think the original movement was just against the coercion and oppression of the state. And at a time when both Protestants and Catholics, church and state was fused, you know, with the Protestant Reformation, the Protestants just set up their own state churches. I mean, it wasn't so the, the Anabaptist movement was like 10 years on the heels of the Reformation. It's called the Radical Reformation. If you look at a lot of anarchist thought, it's sort of Christian anarchism. It's sort of the idea that we reject the state, we reject coercion, and we want to live in communities where we have things in common and we have a common life. It's very communitarian, but anti-state. So an anti-coercion. So it's it's very much like anarchist ideology today. Uh, so yeah. I think, 
and there, there's often been like there's often been comparisons. A lot of Mennonites have have understood themselves as anarchist. Wow. And, and yet they use there. There's also a stream that uses the term non-resistance. So it's not that they're for they're anarchists in the sense of wanting the abolition of all government. They understand that for those that that don't have the rule of Christ, that the that government may be necessary to curb evil, but that Christians don't participate in that because we have a, a higher calling and without unjust laws like merging church and state and persecuting people as heretics and stuff like that, if it was just to curb violence, then government would be justified even though Christians would be called to model a, a different way of life outside of that. I, and I, th I think there's different ways of, of thinking about it. And I, I could be wrong, but I think what Susan's articulating is the sort of dominant position that developed in later generations. I don't think the original Anabaptists said that. I think they were more saying what okay. Anabaptists are saying today. And there are people like Jacques Ellul and others who have reclaimed that kind of anarchist position. But I think what Susan's articulating is is the more dominant position that became the position of a lot of Anabaptists, especially Mennonites. Yeah, I think um, Menno Simons kind of leaned that direction. But... You think he did? Okay. Right. And Menno Simons was not an, one of the original Anabaptists. He right. is the one from which Mennonites take their name, but he was like a second generation Anabaptist. Right, right. Anyway, yeah. that's, a, that's, all, that's more than you want to know about Mennonite and Anabaptist <laughs> history. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good, good. It's good to clear that up because it is confusing. Nowadays, we are against the death penalty, at least most progressives are. So it just seems kind of, you know, well, really, was that really a good idea in the first place? But we can see in the ancient world, they probably used the death penalty too much. Or Well, in, it, in the ancient world... The ancient world really didn't have the capacity of protecting society from incorrigibly violent person other than capital punishment. Where we today, at least in the modern West, you know, we have the capability of creating prisons and mental hospitals and places like that that could safely protect people from incorrigibly or incurably violent people. I don't think in the ancient world there were many civilizations that had that capability, and certainly rural and nomadic people in the ancient world didn't have that capability. It reminds me of a program I saw on, like, Neanderthal man or something really old and it showed this one guy young Neanderthal man who causing some problems um, not listening to the leader causing them to lose prey because he didn't follow those instructions just killed him death or exile were pretty common punishments mm -hmm. 
most cultures until the modern industrial age really didn't have or close to the industrial age didn't have that capacity so it's hard for me to imagine that anyone at the time that any of these myths and legends and epics were written even being able to conceive of that although exile is a known commodity to them and Cain was exiled for example now but there were prisons there were prisons at the time for debtors and and so forth a- ancient Not, Israel no. Israelite law didn't have pr- prisons that was a Greco-Roman no. thing oh okay so, yeah. uh, so I wonder were, what, what Dixie and Debbie haven't weighed in yet yeah, yeah. sorry <laughs> Okay, I, I, I got a simple question, which everybody probably knows, but the Sumerian um, flood story, when, when was that? Well, the first one, I think, was 1600. They call it BCE, but it's basically BC, if mm-hmm. you're look using the old terminology. Okay. So that's, that's pretty old. Yeah, and more, I, more than a thousand years before Genesis. Yeah. So, and they, they have multiple stories out there. I think we're actually done. Any final comments? Did you have anything, Mom, that you wanted to add? Hmm. Well, should I say it? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> you want to I think the big difference between you and me is yeah. when I think the books were written. So I, hmm. I do believe that Moses wrote Genesis hmm. and pretty well um, accepted in most circles that I know. So, uh, hmm. well, the the academic theory has actually four different writers writing the Old Testament, are four different types of writers, one might say, and the Yahwist is one of them, and then there's the priestly class is another of them, and they are the two that are writing the creation narratives and then the Yahweh writes the story of Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and the Noah is sort of more of a mix priestly and and then the tab the um Tower of Babel is kind of a mix of both the priestly now there are two other groups do you remember who they are Bert the the uh... The Elohist and the and the Deuteronomist the others and the, yeah, and the Deuteronomists. Yeah, I learned about that a long time ago in Bible college. Yeah, but I so, didn't accept it. You didn't accept it. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. Okay. So I was telling everybody that I'm working on the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. These first chapters I had already written, but these ones I'm still working on. I hopefully I'll get a meeting early next month. But if not, it's because I'm still working on it. <laughs> okay. Is there a place where we can see that what you've written? Where you've um, posted what you've written? Not, no, not yet. I'm a little leery of doing that because I want to get it published. So I don't know okay. how publishers will take it if I sure. publish it. Okay. Everything going good for you, Bert? Yeah, going really well. Good, good, good. Yeah. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate you, Susan. 
Thank you. Out with this, because we really need your voice on this. And mom, you too. Learned all about the Mennonites. Learned all about the <laughs> things you didn't know about the Mennonites. Uh, yeah. That became a big part of the podcast today. Yes, well, it's good for people to know to know about that, so they know they have another option. Yep. Yeah. We all need those other options. All right. Thank you, everybody. Okay. All, all right. right. Thank you, Rich. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.